Scripture lesson this morning is from Exodus 20. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, for the Lord will not hold that one guiltless who misuses God's name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God will give you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You should not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now when all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen. Don't let God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. But they stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I've been preaching for 30 years now and I've never preached a sermon series on the Ten Commandments so I thought I'd better get around to it before they take my preaching license away. But of course there's a better reason for preaching this series of sermons in this contemporary world. Does it seem just now that human individuals and human institutions are a bit unmoored just now? A little bit adrift or up for grabs? I'm thinking of Volkswagen's cheating engineers and Milan's overpriced EpiPens and double-talking CEO and World Soccer's for-sale officials and Russia's doped-up Olympians and the mud path of Brazilian politics and two presidential candidates that most Americans distrust. Now, you're tempted to think that it's worse than it ever was. It's probably not. Human beings and their institutions have always been ignoring the Ten Commandments, but we like to spin narratives of decline, don't we? Every generation likes to think it's the worst that's ever been. Maybe you've heard the story of the faithful pastor who was concluding a successful ministry of 15 years, and after his last sermon, the congregation threw him a party in Fellowship Hall, and the whole congregation lined up to shake his hand and to say farewell, many of them in tears, including ancient Mrs. Barnstable, who shook the pastor's hand and said, Oh, Reverend Mackenzie, I'm going to miss you so much. What are we going to do without you? And Reverend McKenzie says, oh, Mary, don't worry about it. God's already chosen some wonderful in individual to be my successor. And she or he will take at least as good care of you as I have. And Mrs. Barnstable says, oh, no, they won't, Reverend McKenzie. I'm sure of it. 
And the pastor says, why are you so sure, Mary? And she says, Pastor, I've been here for 50 years through four pastors, and every one has been worse than the last. <laughs> for some reason, we love to spend, spend narratives of decline. We're seduced by the siren song of nostalgia. But nostalgia is a mistake and a lie. We're no worse off than we ever were. And still, we need the Ten Commandments at least as much as those generations that have gone before. They've endured for 3,000 years now. And so I want to point out a few things you might not have noticed about the Ten Commandments. Fascinating to me, maybe at least of mild interest to you. First of all, notice how integral the commandments are to the story of God's history with God's people. Did you notice how this passage began? Then God spoke all these words straight to the people, straight from God's mouth to Israel's ears. This is the only time in the Hebrew Bible where God speaks to God's people without a spokesperson, without a PR point person, without a press agent like Jay Carney. And the people are so terrified they don't want ever to have to go through this again. They say, Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. It's terrifying. We'll listen to you. Let God talk to you. You bring that word to us. That'll work better. And so Moses capitulates. And there are many more pieces of advice God has for God's people in the Hebrew Scriptures. But all of them will be mediated through God's press agent, Moses. And then the importance of the Ten Commandments is reinforced when Exodus tells us that God's very finger etched this advice into granite. These are permanent. They will never go away. We're still paying attention to them 3,000 years later. It's the origin of the cliche, etched in stone. This is immutable. You know, every other medium of human communication is perishable. Paper crumbles. Cloth rots. Plastic disintegrates. I have this wonderful sprawling library of books on tape, but I can't use it because I can't find a cassette player. <laughs> it won't be long before compact discs are obsolete, and in a thousand or perhaps a hundred years, our descendants won't be able to decipher the information we've so painstakingly compiled on our present-day computers and devices unless they translate them into some language that they'll understand. It just all passes away. But the closest thing to eternity on this earth is granite. Etched in stone, says the Bible. This is important. Secondly, this is very important for Kenilworth Union Church. I'll explain that in a minute. Secondly, notice that the Ten Commandments are duplex or binary. Every image of the Ten Commandments that you have ever seen are of two etched arch tablets of stone, even Cecil B. DeMille's, right? I've abbreviated and modernized these for you in your bulletins this morning. See how elegant and concise these are? Two tablets of stone. There's a God tablet on the left and a neighbor tablet on the right. Our obligation towards God and our obligation towards the neighbor. If nothing else, the Ten Commandments are shapely in their symmetry 
and admirable in their brevity. And as if Moses' original advice weren't lean enough, Jesus, in his famously terse praisee, reduces it to a tiny but powerful distillation. Love God above all, says Jesus, and your neighbor as yourself. A God tablet and a neighbor tablet. It's all very simple. There's a vertical dimension to life and there's a horizontal dimension of life. And if you ever forget this, just look at the cross. Vertical post, horizontal beam. God tablet, neighbor tablet. Here's something else fun to notice about the Ten Commandments. These are the most important words that have ever come to us in the Judeo-Christian tradition, and yet only two and a half of the ten have made their way over into our civil legal code. Seven and a half of them might be wrong to do, but they're not illegal. They'll not land you in jail. And while you're thinking about which two and a half I'm talking about, (laughs) here's something to think about. Why is the seventh commandment not against the law? Shouldn't it be illegal to break a religious and civil covenant? You can discuss that amongst yourselves at coffee hour. Here's something else to notice about the Ten Commandments. Commandments is probably not the best way to talk about them. Do you know what the Greek Bible calls the Ten Commandments? The Greek Bible calls this material just the ten words. And so you'll hear Bible scholars talk about the Decalogue, which is Greek literally for ten words. Deca, as in decade, ten, and words. Logos, as in captain's log, stardate 4317. Captain's word, logos, as in biology and psychology. The ten words, the ten instructions, or as Hector Barbosa might put it in Pirates of the Caribbean, these aren't so much rules, they're more guidelines. And some of you kids and parents will know that our Sunday school curriculum for our littlest kids calls the Ten Commandments, this is beautiful, the Ten Best Ways. The Ten Best Ways. And that reframing of what this material means to us just makes all the difference in the world. It reminds us that this is not a constriction. This is not a burden. This is God's greatest gift to us. You hear people say all the time, I don't like organized religion. It's too constricting. It's too confining. All those nots and don'ts, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And they've got a point. Eight of the ten words or commandments are negatives. Don't, don't, don't. But when you stop to think about it, this material is not constricting but liberating. It's not narrow but spacious. It makes life possible. What God's saying from the smoke and thunder and trembling of Mount Sinai is, you're my children. I want you to flourish. Here's how. The ten best ways. There's a vast, sprawling panoply of human behavior and enterprise and relationship and activity and pleasure that are all up to you. You get to make it up as you go along. Just these ten things. Its leanness is a symbol of its freedom. And so the origin and destiny of the Decalogue is not restriction but liberation, not narrowness but spaciousness, not confinement but freedom. Did you notice how God introduces God's self at the beginning of this material? I am the God who, 
Not, I'm the God who gave you life. I am the God who set you free. That's the singular self-identification of Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible. I am the freedom fighter God. I am the God who is on the side of the slaves, not the taskmasters, always and everywhere. I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The source of the Decalogue is freedom. The destiny of the Decalogue is freedom. You were slaves mixing straw with mud to build Pharaoh's pyramids and palaces, and now you are free people. You can walk away from this. You don't have to do any of this stuff I'm telling you, but here's how you're going to flourish. So choose your metaphor. You know, the solid yellow lines on the state highway that tell you where it's safe to drive, the buoys marking the shipping lanes so that you will not wreck your vessel on the shoal of error, the handrails on a swaying footbridge over the dangerous gorge of life, the painted lines on the gym floor that tells you where it's out of bounds, where it's not safe. And so you can see how these lead to freedom rather than constriction. What if we were all free to drive in whatever lane we chose on I-94? That would not feel like freedom, would it? That would feel more like chaos and mortality. And so paradoxically, these best ways, these commandments, free us for spacious living. You can always tell when a life is shaped by the best ways. On September 11, 2001, the offices of the investment bank Sandler O'Neill were on the 104th floor of the South Tower in the World Trade Center. On that beautiful morning, 83 of Sandler O'Neill's 171 employees were in their offices when the planes hit. 17 made it out. 66 were killed. Jimmy Dunn was one of the managing partners who survived 9-11. He's obsessed with golf. He has a one handicap. Some years he plays 200 rounds of golf. And he was playing in Westchester County on that beautiful Tuesday morning, September 11, 2001. And a guy in a golf cart with a walkie-talkie comes out to him on the seventh green and says, you better come in, Jimmy. And so he rushes into Manhattan and tries to see what can be done. And if you've ever met Jimmy Dunn, you know instantly that he is in an intense Irish Catholic from Long Island with an explosive temper and a loud laugh. He's not an easy guy to work for. And so in the 48 hours after the attacks, Jimmy Dunn and the other surviving partners of Sandler O'Neill had some decisions to make and questions to answer. Questions were, do we stay in business? And secondly, how do we take care of the families left behind? And so the answer to the second question gave them the right answer to the first question. There were 100 parents who had lost their children, 46 widows and widowers, 71 children who'd lost a parent. Someone had to take care of them. So that's why Sandler O'Neill stayed in business, so that they could care for the survivors. 
When the stock exchange opened six days after 9-11, Sandler O'Neill was doing business from borrowed offices, borrowed computers, and borrowed telephones. They paid the salaries and bonuses of all those who'd lost their lives. The bonuses were keyed to the employee's most productive year. And they decided to pay the benefits for the families for five more years. And when those five years were over in 2006, they renewed it for three more. Post 9-11, one-third of Sandler O'Neill's capital went to caring for the families. And Jimmy Dunn says, this is why. He says, in 20 years, my kid will be working at a bank or going to law school or teaching somewhere, and my son is going to meet another young man in the training program or in the classroom or in the bank, and they're going to be talking and they're going to realize that they're both from the New York metro area. And then my son will say, my father worked on Wall Street. And the other young man is going to say, so did my dad. Where did your dad work? And my son is going to say, my dad worked at Sandler O'Neill. And the other guy is going to say, my dad worked at Sandler O'Neill too. He died on September 11th. Now, what that kid says to my son, that will be the definition of how well we've done. That's it. That's all we've got to think about. That's the yardstick. We didn't ask to be here, but here we are in the middle of it. And now what we're going to do is every decision we make is going to be based on that future scene. You know, it's the strangest thing. When you feel constrained by these guidelines, by these best ways, when you feel obligated by a voice from the mountain to do the right thing and only the right thing and always the right thing, it's the strangest thing. Living with these constraints, you will feel more free and live more fully than you ever dared to dream. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.